This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Daphne, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, No major changes here. What about you? Uh, things are good. I'm actually recording this from the hospital That's today. Right. This is, uh, I feel like Indiana Jones, you know, it's a big adventure. Um, <laughs> it sure is. Today, today we have the pleasure of having with us Professor Minesh Kashu, who is a professor of perinatology and a neonatologist uh, based out of the United Kingdom. Um, Minesh uh, is doing the pleasure of being on with us. Uh, he has a special interest in NEC, for which he founded the special interest group for NEC, SIGNEC, and uh, for which there's actually a conference every year uh, hosted in London. He'll tell us more about that. Uh, he also is he's a very interesting, um, a very interesting physician. He works actively on advocating and uh, facilitating the, fa- the father's involvement in the NICU. Uh, we'll talk to him about that as well. And uh, he was uh, involved in the creation of an app and, and a lot of other cool stuff. So, Manesh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Uh, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Daphna. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. And I would like to start off by congratulating you uh, for starting this initiative. I think it's important that the neonatal community comes together and we learn to collaborate and share cool stuff as you are doing. So thank you once again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much that. for that feedback. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess for, for the people who are getting to know you, Manesh, the, the, your, you have a very extensive CV but let's start. Uh, let's start at the origins. I mean, you you completed your medical education in India, then you moved to the UK, and and then you you followed a path that led you to Canada and Vancouver specifically, where you did your fellowship in neonatology. Um, can you share with us um, what ended up leading you uh, into the field of neonatology? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting question, and I think sometimes in life uh, things happen uh, for the right reasons, but mm-hmm. you're not necessarily in the driving seat, so to say, whereas you might think you are in the driving seat. So I, as you said, started uh, my uh, MBBS uh, medical graduation in India, then I did my master's in pediatrics, and actually I worked uh, in New Delhi, the capital of India, in what was at that time... Uh, the largest hospital in Asia. I worked uh, in that hospital uh, for a few years doing actually PICU. So I was doing PICU for quite a few years. And then I moved uh, to the UK. And uh, unfortunately, as happens uh, for a lot of graduates who move between countries, it's not always easy going. So Mm -hmm. I had to retrain. I had to retrain uh, partly in the UK and then completed my training. What used to happen those days in the UK was there wasn't a separate specialist training for neonatology, you you became a pediatrician. And then if you did a lot of years of neonatology, you became a neonatologist. Mm -hmm. If you did a lot of cardiology, you became a cardiologist and so on and so forth. So at that time, one of my mentors actually mentioned Vancouver to me as I was finishing my training. And I initially came to Vancouver for a one-year fellowship, but then loved it so much uh, that I ended up staying over three years and wow. uh, did did a lot of a lot of uh, obviously neonatal care did quite a bit of research as well in fact i was chief fellow there uh, for for a few years and a uh, lot of air miles as well so a lot of mm-hmm. getting sick sick babies from all over by helicopter and fixed wing uh, through the british uh, sort of beautiful um, uh, sort of uh, british columbian uh, countryside so Vancouver was a great experience, and in some ways that was a turning point for me to really get uh, stuck into neonatology uh, <laughs> as a speciality. Uh, and it locked you in almost. Huh? It, it did. It did. It did. I think that there was there was no moving back, and Vancouver was a lovely unit, and quite a big unit as well. So one of the things to understand is um, because of the size of the unit, you would see in one year what you would normally take three to four years to see in some of the other units or most mm-hmm. of the average units. So that way, and it was it had a very really nice culture as well. 
So that was beautiful. Unfortunately, at that time, they didn't have a vacancy for me. And if I had to go somewhere else in Canada, I would have had to train again and do three or four more exams. Wow. I think by that time, yeah. That's it. I was fed up. I was fed up. I had already yeah. moved twice. So wow. I think I think that's why I ended up, uh, ended up uh, coming back to the UK. But interestingly, interestingly, I came to the middle part of UK. Then I was in some ways asked to come to where I am now. And this was the south coast of the UK. And I think in some ways it was the closest uh, uh, to Vancouver I could get in mm. terms of landscape. Uh, <laughs> and, and and that's where I ended up landed. And sort of, I, I guess, uh, I, I set my roots up here. So this is a lovely place called Dorset uh, here in the UK. And so, what? What uh, you you just to to finish up on that on that topic? You said that you were initially working in the pediatric ICU. I'm always interested in people who are sort of changing lanes, especially between the NICU and the PICU. Mm-hmm. As to was it that you got fed up with the PICU, or did you just fall in love with the NICU? Which one was it? No, I think it was largely the latter. I I think that the experience in in Vancouver really really crystallized uh, sort of uh, my, my my sort of long term career, really, so to say. I see. Okay. <laughs> That's a good reminder for our our PICU faculty that the the residents who are really interested in NICU, <laughs> there's value to having residents interested in the NICU. Also, <laughs> they always try to convince me otherwise. So, um, I'm always um so intrigued by people who you know have to go to multiple facilities, multiple hospital systems. I think you learn so much, but you've really worked in a variety of different healthcare um, systems, just the way that uh, healthcare works in so many different countries. I wonder how that changes kind of your practice and uh, your approach to medicine. I think I would say Daphna hugely because you learn to see that different things can be done mm-hmm. uh, um, sort of in the same way or the same thing can be done very differently in different parts of the world. And it also uh, gives you a broader prospect uh, perspective because uh, it is it is not necessarily that the priorities with the neonatology will be the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, teams function differently, and I think you 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 learn. I think you have become have a have a more open mind. You're more open actually. I feel people who work in more multiple places are more open to improvement. They're more mm-hmm. open uh, to, to testing new things. So I feel, uh, I actually, I would always advise people uh, uh, during their training, uh, they should try to see multiple multiple healthcare systems. They should try to uh, not work only at one place because uh, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's, it's mm-hmm. useful. And also, if you do it in your forming years, I think it, uh, it makes you a better clinician uh, because uh, because you get a lot of diversity in terms of your attitude to medicine, in terms of your thought processes. So I would always, always uh, say to people I mentor, say to people whom I supervise, uh, try 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 different places out. Uh, even if you go somewhere for six months or three months, it, it's better than not going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so let's let's get into um, some of the of the stuff that that you've done yourself in in your career that that is quite fascinating. I want to start off with SIGNEC, which is the the special interest group for necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, so this is a a collaborative that you you you've built and and you created in 2012. And I guess my question to you is. What exactly happens to you in 2012 with NEC that mm-hmm. you say, you know what, I need to, I need to make this happen. I need to engage everybody on the subject of neck on a global level. Um, what drives the the motiv- What is the motivation to actually get this done? Yeah, no, that I think that's a, that's a, that's a very uh, sort of pertinent question. So it wasn't necessarily spe- something specific for me, but I think at around that time we had some of my colleagues had a couple of cases of within what we would perhaps um, label as transfusion associated neck, so relatively well babies almost ready to go home who who collapse in a heap following a transfusion, and and uh, I was sitting actually on the Dorset coast uh, thinking stuff through, and then suddenly. 
I guess uh, I started thinking is uh, not just in terms of neck as being an important cause of mortality and morbidity in newborns, but more importantly, understanding that nothing had changed in the neck domain in mm. 2012 for the last 30, 40 years. So the treatment hadn't changed, the management hadn't changed. And in some ways, neck was an interesting condition in neonatology where we hadn't moved ahead almost uh, in 30, 40 years significantly. A lot of research happening, a lot of insights, but not really moved ahead in terms of idiopathogenesis. Uh, we hadn't moved ahead in terms of in terms of management. And it's also an interesting condition that is one of the few conditions within neonatal care that has actually quite different multidisciplinary input. So mm-hmm. in, 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 those, uh, in those terms, I felt this was something useful I have always, always had a huge interest in collaborative work and in improvement. So if you ask me what is your overarching passion uh, for work in medicine, I would say QI. Mm -hmm. Quality improvement Mm -hmm. is my area of interest and expertise that that sort of embraces all that I do. So I started SIGNEC not necessarily as, as a research interest, uh, but more as an improvement interest. Um, uh, and that's how it's sta- that's how it started. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. No, I was going to say so, um, so. So far, in the past almost now ten years, nine years specifically, but the, almost ten years, uh, what is the biggest change that that you've noticed or that you've able to implement thanks to uh, thanks to Signec and, and in partnering with people from across the world? So there's two. I would say uh, there's quite a few things we've achieved, but there's still a lot to do. So to give you an example, uh, we have done stuff in our own unit. Uh, for uh, in terms of a package of care where uh, we hardly have any neck in our unit. So um, we've had a couple of cases which were babies which came to us from elsewhere. Otherwise, in the last eight, nine years, we haven't had neck on our unit. There's, mm. there's, uh, um, the audience uh, wants to hear more that's now. Right. You have to tell us a secret. <laughs> so so, so I, I don't think there's necessarily a secret. Having said that, having said that, um, a few years back, uh, because of centralization of care, some of the younger, smaller babies now don't stay with us. They move to one of our uh, surgical units. But even if you looked at, say, babies 26 to uh, weeks and above um, and compare our rates with most units in the world, uh, we, we would be we would be definite outliers at the bottom end. But anyway, we'll we'll come back to that later. But in terms of Signec, couple of things that we did which were different and which actually changed the paradigm, I would say, is we were one of the first scientific meetings which invited parents and families mm-hmm. to sit down with clinicians, with researchers at the same table for two days discussing problems i i don't think in 2012 that was the trend uh, and mm-hmm. after that a lot more conferences and a lot more associations and groups started inviting parents but we were perhaps the first international conference that did that from the very word go and, and that that was great and obviously after signec developed then we had over time the next society developed in the um, in the uh, U.S., with whom I work closely, and then we had a Brazilian society. Again, I invited them to Signe conferences. So, so a lot more uh, national groups have been set up. But I think Signec was the first forum internationally that brought all people together who had an interest in neck. At, on the same platform, and I've had uh, big stalwarts within the neck, no, uh, neck domain, like David Hackam and others, say that this is the highlight of their yearly calendar, largely because this is the only place where people only talk about neck; they don't talk about anything else. This is such a focused meeting, uh, 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 and it, it they felt it's it's good for them to bounce ideas of other neck researchers and stuff. So I think that is that is one big achievement that Signec uh, in some ways set the ball rolling with. And then and the next society in the US has done great work. In fact, much more work than we have done. Uh, but I think in some ways we set the ball rolling and set the paradigm uh, there. The second Second important bit, as I said, was getting the parents to the same table, Mm -hmm. equal members of an improvement and research paradigm. And the third thing I would say is we then initiated, uh, Joan Ferguson was uh, was, um, um, one of the sort of initial parent reps on SIGNEC. She unfortunately lost one of her twin sons to NEC. So she was with me from almost the very go uh, on SIGNEC. 
And we then delineated May 17th as a Global Neck Awareness Day. And then we collaborated with the Neck Society and the Brazilian charity. So that world over now, 17th of May, is is designated as a Global Neck Awareness Day. So that would be something, again, for your listeners um, to utilize, uh, to improve awareness about neck, to improve support for parents uh, using May 17th as a day for campaigns in relation to this. I love that you, you know, are including parents. I think that's so there's so important. I think it brings a lot of value. Certainly, um, parent groups have pushed the boundaries, you know, on quality and, and research um, of numerous pathologies um, that we see. What made you, like you said, it still wasn't pretty, it's still not mainstream to include parents in, uh, you know, scientific um, communities. So what, why did you feel so strongly about including parents? Uh, I think uh, a couple of reasons. One is uh, my thought process uh, is uh, very focused on who the customer is. Mm. So if we're doing improvement or if you're doing research, who is the customer? The customer is the patient, which is the baby and its family. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite important when we're doing improvement or research, our priorities are the real priorities. The priorities should not be Minesh, who has an interest in molecule D and he spends his whole life uh, researching molecule D uh, and publishing 1500 papers on molecule D. I don't think uh, we have a limitation of monies. We have a limitation of research time. So research and improvement should happen on priorities that are important to the people that matter. And who are the people that matter really? The people that matter are the baby and its family. So I think having parents at the table focuses people's priorities on what are the real problems. To give you an example of neck, there is no national or global data set that looks at long-term outcomes of neck. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there? It's there because we haven't heard what, what is important to people. Uh, a lot of the neck difficulties, related difficulties, happen to uh, parents when they leave the neonatal unit, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, why isn't any work done on that uh, or very little work done? Because uh, we don't give parents a voice and ask them what is important to you. So I think any improvement, any research should be done based on prioritization, not just by healthcare workers, but by the parents and family as equal partners. Then and then only we'll be focusing on the real important stuff. Yes, yeah, certainly our goal would be to get rid of neck altogether. But but the truth is it it still exists, right? Like you said, and there are babies recovering from it. There are babies who are not recovering from it. And 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 that's an interesting point. We should be just like everything else, we should be studying the long-term outcomes, certainly, um, mm-hmm. and the long-term, you know, morbidities associated uh, with it. You know, we have a lot of listeners who are pediatricians, are pediatric intensivists, uh, you know, people who, uh, therapists, people who are seeing uh, our, our babies long-term, long after they leave us. And so um, how do we, how do we guide them? I think that's so valuable. What do you think the, um, the biggest contribution that your parent members have provided so far? I think um, one of the interesting things I found from especially basic science researchers who attended SIGNIC conferences was um, they they said they almost were rejuvenated by attending the conferences mm. because it added to their passion. When they heard the parents speak, when they heard the stories about the babies, uh, because they don't normally, uh, for you and me, we come into contact with parents and families on a daily basis mm-hmm. because of clinical work. But for some of the uh, basic science researchers who largely work in the lab, they don't they don't get that interaction. So I think they found that hugely valuable. They they felt it's almost like a recharge for us for next mm-hmm. year, uh, because because it adds passion to our work. We get a meaning why we're doing what we're doing. So I think that that is one is quite important. And the second bit, as I said, it really focuses the 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 clinician's mind on. What is important? What is uh, what is uh, what needs to be prioritized? Uh, and also, um, I think one of the other things I wanted to highlight as part of this podcast is 
The problem in neonatology in, say, neck, for example, might be we don't understand the disease we, and it's very difficult to treat a disease well if you don't understand the disease or its cause as well. But there are a lot of things in neonatology where we have the answers and we still don't implement it. Mm. Yeah, so we have a problem not just in, in the science, we have a problem in implementation as well. And... Um, by having so, sorry, by having parents at the table, it pushes clinicians uh, towards better practice, hmm. uh, and, and that's quite critical. We we seem to have too long a gap between having the evidence and between changing practice, and that needs to get narrower and narrower. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. You had something to say. No, I was going to say I have I have the the perfect follow up then because I think um, the work that you've done that I've enjoyed reading about is the one on on neck obviously but also the use mm -hmm. of uh, bowel ultrasound i think you have a few papers that have been published and that look at could we use abdominal ultrasounds as a as a tool to diagnose nec uh, for anybody that is interested in the topic i think you recently um, were the senior author on an article called implementation of bowel ultrasound practice for the diagnosis and management of necrotizing enterocolitis it was published in 2019 it was in Archives of Disease and Childhood. We'll put the link to the article in the show notes. But in there, you have a very detailed, uh, almost a protocol as to how to use abdominal ultrasound. And for what you were describing, if we could reduce the exposure to radiation of babies in the mm -hmm. unit by using something that is less invasive, that is less exposure to radiation, it feels a lot like exactly what you were just describing. We have a way to make things better um, and it's not something that I've seen in any of the units I've worked at. Actually, I've gotten pushback from radiologists when I wanted to do an abdominal ultrasound for NEC because I was telling, I was being told how technically difficult it was. Um, I'm just wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what your experience has been with bowel ultrasound and where do you see the future of it? Most specifically, do you think that this is something that we're going to need to push for towards the radiologist? Or do you think that this is something that will come down the pipe for neonatologists interested in point-of-care ultrasound? So I'm just curious to see what, what your thoughts are on, on this at this point and what the future of it looks like for bowel ultrasound and NEC. You know, thanks, Ben. I, and, and very pertinent question. I, I, I don't claim to be an expert in bowel ultrasound, so I'm far, far, far away from that. So it's largely radiologist, but I do, I do. Uh, a lot of the work I do, as I said, is about improvement and it's about leadership. It's about getting the right people together and moving things forward. So, uh, so um, in terms of bowel ultrasound, I think there are definite advantages uh, over x-rays, which is the traditional modality we use. Uh, and a Apart from obviously decreasing uh, exposure to radiation, the critical main advantage is earlier earlier diagnosis uh, and and trying to rule out the diagnosis in doubtful cases where you're not sure based on the clinical picture or the radiographs. Uh, and there's there's reasonable evidence to suggest that an earlier diagnosis of neck will improve outcomes by either mm -hmm. getting uh, by either getting uh, the child earlier treatment or transferring the child earlier to another center if need be or whatever so i think the critical advantage of bowel ultrasound perhaps is an earlier diagnosis and hence uh, most likely better outcomes um, and the the article that you mentioned is largely we wanted to present it almost like a framework so if you as a unit wanted to do it it was just a template to get started i feel um, its implementation will vary country to country mm -hmm. um, there will be countries like the uk where i feel um, or, or parts of europe where i feel the neonatologists will do it as point of care ultrasound over time my experience from a North American perspective is, is perhaps something that you need to push your radiologists to get started and have a protocol, have some governance around it, and people will get to learn. Ultrasound overall will change neonatal practice or practice largely in most clinical medicine in the next 10 years in terms of its ease and in terms of the range of conditions and situations we use it in. So I think. Um, uh, it, it will come. Um, I feel perhaps in North America, the best option is to 
uh, find uh, within an inverted comma friendly and interested radiologist uh, mm-hmm. and and find set up a group within our own, your own unit and start start doing it i think it's definitely um, an improvement uh, sort of pathway uh, and uh, it, it will it will help in earlier diagnosis and also it sometimes helps you rule out um, when it is not neck, which is again uh, clinically uh, e- equally useful, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more than happy to get you in touch with some of the radiologists who have done uh, extensive work in this domain, so that they can they can mentor, uh, say, your particular units uh, to get started, uh, provide advice. So I think that that all is possible yeah. because that's largely the idea: is can we can we help disseminating this good practice? Can we help the implementation? Mm-hmm. And I think I think that sounds that sounds terrific. And I think for anybody who's interested, I really recommend you checking out that paper. There's there's actually uh, an above average number of pictures in there, so that, mm-hmm. like you said, it will provide a nice framework and nice reference points uh, for yourself or any or radiologist working with you to implement this modality as a potential tool for the diagnosis of NEC. So yeah, thank you for doing that. Well, and and like you said, I, part of the problem is you know we still don't totally understand it. And we, there are so many cases where we're saying, is this neck? Is this not neck? And uh, especially given the amount of antibiotic usage, um, you know, that we do for neck or neck rule outs. Uh, I mean, obviously anything that will better define the pathology and the disease process, um, I think will benefit so many babies. Um, I, I wonder how, how you think that, you know, ultrasound will, you know, will it be part of our diagnostic criteria you think in the future? Uh, I think it, it will, but um, the, the most important thing I feel in terms of ultrasound overall as, as, a, as a point of care ultrasound, I think it will change a lot of neonatal unit practices. So 10 years down the line, we may not be doing x-rays for mm-hmm. ET2 placement. Mm-hmm. We may not be doing x-rays for line placement. Uh, 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 and so I think that there is, there is a huge, there is a huge, uh, potential uh, in using it um, at point of care. So I think uh, I think uh, definitely definitely an area to delve into deeper. Yeah, I, I want to. Okay, no, I was going to say I, I'm I was fortunate that um, where I trained at the University of Florida, um, we were really um, moving forward with point of care ultrasound, and we had some wonderful radiologists who were just as excited about neonatologists using point of care ultrasound as we were. And so um, I think it's so, like you said, we have to cross over our lanes and uh, disrupt our silos and talk to people in in the other um, uh, disciplines to really make progress. And so I really commend you for the, the work that you've done. I'm so grateful for the radiologists in my life that have, you know, accepted us and um, trained us a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think it's really exciting. And like you said, the, the end goal is, is helping babies. And so, you know, we've got to do everything we can to come together and, 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 and do that. What, um, what was the hardest part about kind of designing your, or introducing ultrasound into your unit. I think um, a lot of people are interested, um, but there are uh, certainly some some barriers um, uh, to that. What what were kind of the the hardest things that you guys faced? As I mentioned to you, uh, we we don't really see neck on my unit, mm-hmm. so we haven't we haven't uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, we haven't utilized bowel ultrasound uh, within our unit. But some of my other team members on on that project uh, who are who are sort of authors on the publication, they have been using it extensively, and. Uh, um, as I said, we we don't see neck on my unit, so there's there's no patients to scan really. <laughs> there's no patients to scan. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Right. So, but but uh, there are a few units. Uh, there are a few units in the UK, uh, so, um, and some some surgical uh, sort of. Uh, trainees and uh, and uh, surgical uh, consultants who use it uh, but the, i know quite a few of uh, my colleagues uh, through the signec uh, world 
uh, who who utilize it in North America as well. So I, I think anybody wanting to get started, wanting some initial help or wanting some mentorship for their mm-hmm. uh, uh, for their ultrasound program for NEC, please get in touch with me and I'll, I'll set you up with the right people so that you have some support yeah. uh, on, on the on the initial sort of uh, and we'll, path. And we will leave your your Twitter handle on the show notes because I think you're very active on Twitter as mm-hmm. well. I want to sure. ask you one more question about NEC and then we can move on to another topic. But um, sure. anybody interested in in uh, participating, collaborating with you, Signec uh, can be found on the on the web, www.signec.org. It's spelled S-I-G-N-E-C.org. And the question that I had is May 17th as NEC Awareness Day. Was there a reason why May 17th? Um we had a few alternatives and then we had to uh, take into account uh, the World Prematurity Day, which was, I guess, a different end of the year. So um, uh, there, there was there was some reasons for May 17th, but um, um, uh, I think uh, it was more out of excluding some other potential dates <laughs> <laughs> that we, 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 we ended up we ended up with May 17th. There are only yeah. so many days okay. in the year, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a crowded calendar. I feel like every time you walk into the hospital, it's some, somebody's day yeah. or somebody's week. There's, there was initially doctor's week, nurse's week, then there was therapist week, uh, clerk's week. And so there's it's a crowd. The calendar is very crowded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the dad pad neonatal. I mean, you worked with the team at Inspire Cornwall in 2012 uh, to launch what's now called the dad pad. And, and for the listeners who are not familiar with it, with it can, you, can you tell us a little bit what are the, what is the mission and the, the, the goals of, of dad pad neonatal? Yeah, thank you for that. So, uh, DadPad, uh, so um, uh, the company that you mentioned had already produced a DadPad, which was a resource for fathers in relation to having a baby. Uh, and I had always felt on the neonatal and maternity uh, sort of uh, pathway that fathers, to some extent, um, don't get the same attention as mothers and in some ways that that is appropriate because mother is the is the primary uh, patient uh, on, on the maternity pathway um but dads had a lot of unmet needs and we've done some research to show that dads have unmet needs um they also uh uh, as a generalization, react to stress differently. They communicate somewhat differently. Uh, they will also uh, most of the time be going back to work earlier, so they're not on the unit all the time. So I will always felt that dads perhaps did not get the same quality and quantity of information and communication that mothers did. And they unfortunately did not get the same degree of support but because they were not around. Uh, so we did some work on that. And again, the dad pad neonatal uh, came about as a, as a quality improvement project really for me. So there is an, a lot of unmet need for fathers. How do we meet that need? And one of the ways of meeting those unmet needs was through a dad pad. So dad pad neonatal is, is uh, basically a physical resource that um, um, basically welcomes the father to the neonatal unit. It talks about who the people on the neonatal unit are. It talks about why your baby's on the neonatal unit. What are the common conditions? What is the common equipment? What is expected to happen in the first 12, 24 hours? What is expected to happen after that? Who are the different people working? What work do they do? How do you interact with them? It also has space um, where the dad can write about his emotions. Mm-hmm. It it uh, encourages the father uh, to ask questions. It, there is a place there uh, for the father to put in pictures of his baby. And the reason we kept it as a physical copy was we wanted it almost like a memento as a keepsake of the neonatal journey for dad. So that this was mm-hmm. something particular for dad. Uh, and that's how it developed. We are in the process of uh, making into an app as well, uh, we, but we will still please keep the physical copy because the physical copy is like a memento for dad. It's it's about him mm-hmm. and his journey with with, with his, with his uh, sort of um, infant. Uh, and uh, so the way it happens is. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, if mums uh, are unwell or they have has a, had a section, they may not be able to come to the unit. So dad is the first person visiting. So when dad visits the unit for the first time, 
uh, we will give him the datpad neonatal we will signpost him to things um, but then we also utilize uh, the datpad neonatal as a conversation tool so it's not just uh, i give you a book go and read it and then tell me uh, if you have any questions so it's not like that uh, we, we tell them uh, sort of some of the key areas and then we go back to the we go back to the resource and ask them uh, and utilize that as as a way to generate conversation and engagement with fathers uh, um, but the dad pad neonatal is is one of the things i think what we're interested in more is a paradigm shift with the neonatal and maternity services where we focus on the co-parenting paradigm which means that mom is not the only carer mom and dad are both carers they all they have needs sometimes the same needs sometimes different needs so if we are serving them as uh, they being our customers we need to serve both of them and serve uh, their different needs so that's largely how yeah. it is uh, it's it's uh, it's done quite well we got very good feedback and actually it's gone international now as well we have a, we have a, Uh, currently uh, deliberations going on uh, with with uh, a large batch going to new zealand i also wanted to highlight ben and afna is i have done this as a quality improvement work i have no financial stake in the product and i have so i'm not involved uh, with the company right. financially for me this is just a qi project uh, and generating yeah, and, a, and that's good generating and, and that's good of you of Yeah, that's good of you to pointing that out as well. I mean, and for people who are interested, I think the the we can find out more at the dadpad.co.uk/neonatal. Uh, and there's a ton of info there and the prototypes of the apps are there and it looks pretty pretty nifty and I'm sure Daphne has tons of questions. <laughs> I <on> do. <laughs> Yeah, you know, ahead, this is certainly an area of interest for me, and um, you know, for our listeners, we can we'll put the link in the in the show notes, um, but that they can actually download a like a ten page um, kind of primer uh, for the dad pad, so they can see what it's all about. And I, I found that very useful. Um, I think what I loved about it is that it is so simple, actually, um, because it gives the the dad just some basic information but it's really um about empowering um his participation um in in the unit and and we know that dads play such a role especially you know in our changing society that we, you know it's not fair that we don't bring them in from the very first day so um i think that is just phenomenal i think the the graphics are nice i think they um certainly um are targeted uh to to dads potentially um but knowing that we have all kinds of dads we have all kinds of families in in the unit um what uh, maybe you can tell us about a you know success story uh using the dad pad or you know some of your your favorite dad adventures no i think i think it it has uh, we have had excellent feedback uh, from 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 all quarters and interestingly actually mothers love it as well so sure. mothers find a lot of information Absolutely. in it as well couple of points i wanted to highlight for the audience one is um uh, if people want to have a preliminary chat just to understand whether it's something that might be useful for them feel free to contact me so i think that's fine what we have also done i already told you that we're in the process of making it to an app we'll still keep the physical version but we have also um the capacity to make bespoke versions for you because a lot of the stuff is general neonatology stuff in the dad pad but some of the stuff is specific uh, say to uk in terms of the types of units so for example mm-hmm. if somebody in north america mm-hmm. wanted a dad pad version a bespoke version for that region can be made uh, languages can be changed without much difficulty and also we are aware um in today's days and age about uh, diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. so we are also open uh, uh, to make uh, different versions for say like same sex couples and stuff like that so so i think those are all possibilities um, this was uh, in a way the first step in this direction to generate some improvement but even though we called it the dad pad it's largely about empowering parents mm-hmm. uh, and we can easily make bespoke versions for different regions of the world we can make 
make bespoke re- even for a particular unit where you could have all your particular links to to your phone numbers to your contact details so y- you can you can make something similar um something similar uh, and uh, sort of make it make it particular for you for your needs so there is there's ample opportunity uh, to make bespoke versions i think i think this is you're touching on a point that is going to it's it's so dense <laughs> i think we have a hard time understanding the perception of the neonatal icu from the dad's perspective because there's a multitude of different types of fathers there's the reserved parent fathers there's the more uh, vocal ones but when you're talking about some of um <clears throat> to be more inclusive and include sort of same sex parents and stuff like that i think we're only touching the surface mm-hmm. as to Uh, the relationship in, in within these couples and their relationship to the neonatal ICU in the context of uh, having a baby in the NICU. So I think maybe the uh, dad pad and 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 the app is going to help us understand. I think in this new generation, um, all these different couples that we're now including and being much more sort of aware, aware of and and trying to uh, cater to in 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 the NICU. So I think I think there's tremendous potential there. Thank yeah you. and that's what struck me when I when I opened it as I said everybody needs this right <laughs> you know all the caregivers and you know at least you know right now um so many caregivers that are part of the family unit even even extended right grandparents aunts uncles siblings um you know we're very much restricted on that because of the pandemic but um you know it affects entire families and it affects entire communities and NICU admission of, of one very, very sick baby. And so um, I love that you guys are, you know, trying to do something different. I, I think certainly um, having the app, you'll be able to even reach more people. So I'm excited mm-hmm. to see that come out. Thank you. I have one question about the, the dad pad and, and it's not really about the dad pad. It's mostly about supporting fathers in the NICU. But when you're creating and you're and you're consulting on creating these pamphlets and these tools for fathers, is there a way or is there something specific about fathers that drives how information is presented or delivered? Um, because I'm sure that, for example, if you go through uh, some of the of the information on the dad pad, there's a lot of topics that apply to obviously both mm-hmm. mother and father, like breastfeeding and putting the baby to sleep. But is there a specific way that that needs to be taken when you're approaching information sharing and delivery to fathers specifically that you've noticed? Uh, there definitely is. Again, these are generalizations. So every every per- person is individual. So when we talk about personalized care, you have to understand who is in front of you and personalized care based on them. But as a generalization, dads will manage uh, stress differently. Their communication needs are different. Their communication preferences are different. Uh, and so, so we had a we had a focus group of dads, about eight nine dads, with whom we worked in terms of the in terms of the dad pad. Uh, and I, I think it is important uh, whenever we're doing this type of work uh, that again uh, the customer focus. Who is the customer? Where is it going to go to? I think that that is that is quite important. Um, and uh, I do feel uh, that fathers will will engage differently. So if you look at uh, if you look at Um, traditionally, what neonatal units do to bring back, say, mothers who get some peer support is they will create uh, like a coffee morning and the moms come in and they chat and they discuss through stuff. Most of the time, fathers don't engage in it. So you will even get them into the room, but they don't talk, they don't open up. So you have to find you have to find different ways and means and avenues of engaging with fathers, which sometimes are better done one to one or um uh, or, or you have to change you have to change uh, the context in which you are meeting so i think it's quite important to understand understand that and then tailor the product uh, as i said to the needs of the customer yeah it's a good reminder that it's not uh, our information our dissemination of information is not you know one size fits all right it's not the same for for everybody that's such a valuable point Uh, we're coming close to the end of the of the interview, but I, I guess um, for me, one one of I guess my last question would be: you, you are very involved in 
technology and, and quality improvement and innovation. And you do see the field of neonatology almost like a startup, right? I mean, you're thinking of it as the customer experience. What are the customer outcomes? And I know the word customer has a lot of stigma around it, but it's true. I mean, we do have to do, we have to provide our patients and their families with the absolute best care and results possible. And when you put it in, the, in, that, in that frame, it makes more sense. Now, um, what do you think, uh, in your opinion, is the next 10 years going to look like when we incorporate technology and especially new technologies, AI innovation into neonatology? What, what do you think, uh, where do you think, where do you think things are going? Okay, so to me, the most important in, uh, intervention in neonatology, actually in whole of healthcare, in the next decade is not going to be a device, it's not going to be a drug. So the most important intervention in healthcare in the next decade is going to be data. Mm. How we collect data, how we use data to generate insights. So data, AI, machine learning, to me, that is the biggest intervention uh, that should happen in the next decade to improve outcomes. Uh, because there's huge potential there. And the reason I'm saying that is you will not generate an antibiotic or a pill or a device that can match the amount of improvement that your data can do. So every day, every baby in every neonatal unit is generating data. What are we doing to that data? That data is going into a black hole somewhere that nobody knows about. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're generating data on a on a daily basis. Every baby is telling us stuff. So I think it's a massive is, amount of data. Yeah, yeah you're, we're not you're doing speaking it. you're speaking Ben's language right now. I know that this excites him. <laughs> so, so we need to find we need to find a way of collating this data, getting insights from this data. It will also change our research paradigm. I think our current mm -hmm. paradigm of research, where we think that the RCT is the only thing that's good or useful, is again I, I don't have anything against RCTs, and there will be questions. Uh, that RCTs will help us answer. But there are other ways of research, faster ways of research, quicker turnaround times, more cost-effective using data, using big data. So we have to. I think to me that is going to be the biggest and most important change needed in the next decade. In terms of devices, I think what will also come about is the way we monitor. So one would be remote monitoring and the other would be monitoring without wire. So if you currently see a baby on a neonatal unit, he's like a phone exchange of the old years, isn't it? There's tens of lines going into the baby. So th th those, those lines will go. Those lines will go. In five to 10 years, uh, you will have ways where nothing is coming out of the baby or getting into the baby. You will be able to monitor a lot of the stuff. Obviously, we'll still need long lines and things like that. But in terms of the heart monitoring, in terms of other stuff, I think it will it will be uh, almost wireless monitoring. Yeah. So I think that will be that will be the big uh, big thing. And and finally, what I'm hoping what I'm hoping is. Uh, that the variation in outcomes in neonatal care between countries and between different regions of the same country, those variations, unexpected, unwanted variations need to narrow down. So um, whether a baby is born in Colombia or India or Pakistan or Poland uh, or Vancouver, uh, every baby deserves to have the same good outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a big challenge for the neonatal community to find ways where we bridge this big gap, not just between countries. So if you look at, say, uh, outcomes in Africa or Southeast Asia compared to, say, the West, even within U.S. or even within the U.K. or Europe, uh, there are areas which have worse outcomes. So I think this unwanted variation uh, these poorer outcomes, uh, which are largely related to perhaps um, um, bigger determinants of health within those populations, I think we need to find ways. We need to find ways to improve those outcomes. Well, I just love how you know it seems you obviously have a passion just for bringing people together, and I think that's one of the ways that your work is different 
than what other people are doing because um, it's hard, right? It's hard to talk to people who uh, don't speak our language, uh, either uh, actually our language or, you know, just what our interests are. Um, but you seem to have a knack knack for doing that. So what do you recommend for, for other people who are trying to kind of disrupt the typical ways that we do research? When we talk about innovation, um, one of the quotations I use and I've been using for the last eight, 10 years is uh, that collaboration is the most critical innovation for healthcare. Mm. So the innovation we need isn't a magical device or a magical pill or anything. It is people getting together, uh, all the right stakeholders getting together in a in a room, and outsourcing. Yeah. 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 So I I I think I think that 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 is the critical bit. Um, you don't necessarily need the whole world. I think. Um, uh, you need a small group of passionate people and then you build the network uh, accordingly. I think uh, most people generally want to do good work. Most people get up in the morning uh, and want to have a good day. So I think it, it is about, it is about um, basically utilizing that passion that people inherently have and supporting them. Network weaving, again, is a science, so I can talk to you about uh, that um, maybe some other time. Uh, but we've just finished a nine-month program through one of the um, important health tanks here in the UK called uh, called Health Foundation, where we focused on what is the what is the role of networks in improvement and how how what is the science of networking, what is the art of networking. Um, uh, but I, I I think it is about uh, taking uh, no pun intended baby steps uh, <laughs> and getting started. I think the most difficult bit is the first step. So if you take the right step, people will join you. So I think, yeah. uh, I, I think, I think that that's that's quite important. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, th there's a lot of good happening. So I'm not I'm not trying to uh, paint a picture um, uh, otherwise. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot more that we could be doing. There's this famous author called Stephen Pressfield that has a book called The War of Art. And he says that the biggest uh, hurdle to getting anything done with any creative endeavor is the is, is resistance. Mm -hmm. He says there's everybody is facing resistance and that's really the impediment to getting anything done. And it's exactly what you're describing. We just need to get started and and then build on that. So that's that's a great message. Daphne, anything else before uh, we close? I really enjoyed speaking with you today. I uh, encourage everybody to check out the DadPad, um, get to the Signac website. It's very easy to use. Um, all of the information there is easy to find. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing uh, what else uh, you come up with. Yeah, I really like the Signac website and, and you have a blog on there that where really like leaders in the field of NEC have written articles on different topics. These are amazing. I really enjoy them. So I, I recommend people check it out. So yeah, I echo Daphne's sentiment and thank you, Manesh, for being on with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And as I said, keep up the good work. I want to leave you, you guys with two things. One is... Um, Everybody is very busy, but these type of projects, I call them passion projects. These type of passion projects are important because even though they might mean extra time, they actually give you a lot of resilience and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. They make the other hard work uh, better because they almost recharge you. So, so see these passion projects as a way to recharge yourself for much harder and more sort of drudgery of the normal day's work. <laughs> so that's one. Uh, and and the second bit I want to leave you with is uh, that excellence is a habit. Mm. So true. Yeah, that's, a, that's a so good. <laughs> so true. I, well, I don't have anything else to say. I think uh, we're certainly learning that. We're spending every free moment we have on the, on the podcast, but uh, we're enjoying it for sure and, and getting to meet people like you. Good Thank luck. you, Manesh. Good luck and thanks once again. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. Thank you.